Morning, church. Well, it's loud. It's a little farther away. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Exodus. We'll be in chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9 of Exodus, verse 13. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 9, and then we'll go read all of chapter 10. So we'll be here just a little bit. It's the new mic. How's the new mic look? Look, look fancy? It likes to make noise. We're going to figure it out. So you, I'm just going to stay over here. You stay way over All there. Right. We'll figure All it right. out. We'll get close. <laughs> All right. We're in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I have put out my hand and struck I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is, that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the, house, into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that, that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the, to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. <clears throat> Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now we'll start here in chapter 10. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into, the, into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of your, all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the from the day they came on this earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the, the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up, came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees in the land oh, <clears throat> that remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once. And I plead with the Lord your God to only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong east wind, which lifted the locusts, I'm sorry, west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. 
for we, we, must make, we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Take a breath, man. You exhausted? <laughs> yeah. All right. Good job, man. That's a, that's a lot to read as usual. So good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Well, if you don't know me, there's some new people in the room today. My name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here today. Something that I always say, and it's going to be relevant today more than ever. Um, hey, if you've got any questions, please come ask me. If you're going through anything, I would love to pray with you. We always say at Freshwater, we want this to be a safe place. Just be wherever you are. Like people come into church all the time and they pretend, and what a silly thing that is to come into church and pretend. And so it's okay to be wherever you are. What we're supposed to do as a church is not pretend, be where we are right now, and then we can all grow together. Amen? Right? It's moving forward together. It's not pretending that I, I'm in this place that I'm not. It's about being honest about where you are so that we can all move forward. We can all move towards Jesus Christ together. So as you saw today, we're in the book of Exodus. We're going to start in chapter 9 today. We're covering huge swaths of scripture, which is, if you've been to Freshwater, is different for us, right? A lot of times, sometimes I'll preach over two verses, but this is not um, like the epistles that Paul wrote to a specific church. This is a story. And so we read a little bit more, and I'm having people read so that we can see kind of the overview of the story of what's happening in the book of Exodus, and then we can go back in and kind of break it down and, and see what it's all about. So let me start with this today. So let's start with a question. Um, if I was to say to you, how is God's glory seen in the world? What do you think you'd say? So I'm going to ask you, how, how do we see God's glory play out in the world? Yeah, I, th- there I heard someone say grace, like the grace through Jesus Christ, right? It meant, meant the gospel. I think someone said grace. Like, so people would say the gospel, right? Jesus Christ. Yes, amen. Some people would say like the greatest commandment by loving people, right? And we were seeing it through love, the love of God in the world, and we show the love of God to other people. There's lots of things we could say is how, God, how is God's glory seen in the world. But before we can really understand how it's seen in the world, let me try to define it for a second. Because honestly, the glory of God is something that's kind of hard to define. You don't have to say it right now, but I was, if I was going to say, define the glory of God, what would you say? You can say Jesus Christ. That's the easy answer, right? That's the church answer. It's kind of like some things are really easy to define. Um, but define beauty for me. You don't need to do it, right? But that's harder, isn't it? Like to d- define the concept of, of beauty, right? And so God's glory is kind of that way. It encompasses so much, it's hard to define. But I saw one definition from a pastor that I trust. One definition I saw said this, that God's glory is the manifest beauty of God's holy character. I like that. Right? The manifest beauty. That how manifest means that we see it, that it's with us. We, we see the beauty of God, and that reveals his holy character. It's how, what we, where we read in Scripture, how we experience it, how we feel God's beauty, how we experience God's character in the world through Christians and through him convicting our hearts. It, it's really how um, God's glory is seen through all of creation. Right? Romans 1 talks about that, that all creation is declaring God's glory. It's God's glory is in all things. Sometimes scripture kind of describes glory as light or even weightiness. Like God's glory has a weight to it. God's presence has a weight to it. So um, I think when we think of God's glory in that context, his beauty, his character, we do think of things like Jesus Christ, which we should. We think of things like love and grace and, and mercy and beauty, even things that we do, service and kindness and goodness. And all of those things are true. 
All of those things are true, that we see God's glory through those things, through God working through us. But you know another way that in Scripture we consistently see God's glory go forth? Judgment. Did anybody think judgment when I say, how do we see God's glory in the world? Do they think, oh yeah, judgment, his justice on the world, his judgment against the world. God judging the world. God judging us for our actions. God judging against sin. God judging for people's deeds. Why does that declare God's glory? Because it shows that God is against evil in this world, doesn't it? Don't we want a God who's against evil, his holy character, opposes sin, opposes the devastation that we see in this world? But maybe even more importantly that, his judgment declares that God is, as the prophet Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy. Perfectly pure, perfectly righteous, a God of justice. God's judgment declares his glory as much as anything else does. And so as we've been walking through this book of Exodus, we're seeing this play out right now. Today, we're going to see it really play out as God has raised the stakes. If you haven't been with us as we walk through the book, we finally got to the point where Moses is going before Pharaoh again and again, and all of these different plagues are happening. It started with the, the turning the, the Nile and the water to blood, and there's been frogs, and there's been, there's been boils, and there's been all sorts of things kind of as this warning to them, but it's also judgment for their sins against Israel. They've enslaved God's people. They have not listened to God, and so all of these judgments are judgments against their sin. It's not just about freeing God's people. It is about that, but it's also judgment against their sin. But today God's going to take it to a whole nother level because the other plagues have been bad. They have been bad. But today it's going to be taken to a deadly level. The cost economically, the cost personally, and even the cost of human life is about to get deadly serious in this thing. It's about to get deadly serious. God is bringing the weight of his judgment against Egypt. And in that, his glory is going to truly be displayed to the entire world. That in the end, that's what this is about. God's judgment of Israel and the freeing of his people, the deliverance of his people is about God declaring and displaying his glory to a world that doesn't really know him yet. That's what we're going to be really looking at and how judgment can... We don't think of judgment and justice and God judging and bringing justice against even our own sin draws us to him, but it does. It does in spectacular ways. That's what we're going to see by the end of this today. So let's just jump back into the passage and and see how the story helps display this for us and what this story really is about. In chapter 9, let's go back to chapter 9, and let's start in verse 13. And I'll read through verse 17. 9, 13 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. Do you see that? That's different. He's not just sending his plagues against Egypt. He's going to say that, but he's saying, I'm sending them against you, Pharaoh. I'm going to send my plagues against you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you, have been, you would have been cut off from the earth. Did you hear that? I, I could have cut you all off. This could all be done. This is, I, I'm doing this this way for a reason. He's going to tell us the reason. Verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, raised up Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may, may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. 
So if you've been with us, we've talked about how the main themes of this book is, um, overall, is God's covenant faithfulness, that God always keeps his promises. We break our promises all the time, don't we? But God never breaks his promises. He never breaks his covenant. So God's covenant faithfulness. We've talked about God's deliverance, how God delivers his people. He, de- he delivers his people. That's what this is really about, right? Delivering his people from enslavement by the Egyptians so they might be free, that God is a deliverer of his people. And then lastly, God's presence, that God is literally with his people. He's not some distant God, but he's with his people. So those are the themes that we've talked about so far. And they are, they are the themes of Exodus. But if you really want to understand why God is doing what he's doing, if you really want to understand what this book is really about, it's right here in what we just read. God is doing all of this so that his name Another way of saying that in scripture is his glory might go into all the earth. Into all the earth. You ever wondered why God allows certain rulers, certain kings, certain presidents, certain whatever to rise up in power and it doesn't seem to make any sense at all? They're not godly. They're not righteous. They're not what you would pick. If you were God, you wouldn't allow it. You're like, I wouldn't, why would God allow this, right? You ever wonder why that happens? Well, God just, at least in this instance, just told us why. He let an enslaving, prideful, megalomaniac Pharaoh be in power over his own people and even to the point that he enslaved them so that through him, God's glory might go to all the earth. And I I guarantee there's times we've seen in Exodus that it didn't feel fair to them. They're like, why would God allow this to happen to us? Why would God do this thing? And isn't that totally understandable? They're in a terrible position. They've been enslaved. And when the first time Moses went to Pharaoh, it got worse. Of course they don't understand. Of course it doesn't feel fair. But God is telling them, hey, I'm doing this for a purpose. I have a reason so that my glory might go to all the earth. And how is God accomplishing that? How is God's glory mainly being displayed to all the world right now? Let's, like, hear me. Do you think that people still know this story 3,000 years later, almost 35 years, 100 years later, that even non-believers, a lot of non-believers have heard of the story of Exodus. Listen, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Even Hollywood has just recently, not that long ago, made a movie about the story of Exodus. And by the way, while they were making it, the director and one of the actors bashed the Bible and bashed Christians. You think they're making it because they respect the, the material? No, it's because it's an epic story and they wanted to tell a story to make some money. Well, you think people are still... Why do you think people are still talking about this 3,000, 3,500, really 3,500 years later? Do you think it's because God saved some people? I think that's a part of it. In part, to see God, how amazing he is to save his people and, and people glorifying him through that. But the world remembers this story because of the plagues. Because of the Red Sea and Egypt being drowned in the Red Sea. God remembers this because of God's power that he took. He took on the most powerful kingdom in the world. And through his judgment for sin, he took not only judgment for sin, but he took a people with no power, no wealth, no control, no no hope, and no army. And he not only freed them, but he wrecked what was the representation of the most powerful force in the world at the time with nothing. That's why people remember this story. That's why people are still talking about it today. Of, of course, for us that believe, of course this is a story about redemption and a story about deliverance. I hope for us that believe we remember this story because what God does. Because do you think the Israelites are being saved because they deserve to be saved? That the, the Egyptians are really, really bad and the Israelites are really, really good? No, God for, God, for those who are faithful to him, he'll pass over their sins. 
For those who submit to him, he'll pass over their sins. For those who ask for forgiveness, he'll pass over their sins. That's what we're going to talk about here in just a few weeks on Easter, the Passover that's coming. No, it's not because they were perfect. But the the reason that people remember this story so well is because of, of what God did in his judgment against sin. And it's declared his glory to the entire world for over 3,500 years. Sometimes, and I know some of you in this room know this very well, sometimes it's in the wake-up call that people are led to him. Yes, through grace and mercy, yes and amen, but sometimes it it takes the wake-up call for people to see who God really is and for them to be drawn to him. So in the end, the real problem that we're seeing in Exodus the real problem for Pharaoh, and honestly, if, if we look at our lives, honestly, the real problem for us is found in verse 17. The real reason Pharaoh will not let God's people go is, sim- is, is not simply because he's had his heart hardened or he's hardened his own heart, or even because God has hardened his heart. It's because he's exalting himself. It's because he's exalting himself. Listen, church, is, is that not the human condition that we exalt ourselves. In the end, almost all of our sins, all of our lack of holiness, all the times that we miss the mark when it comes to our Christian faith is instead of holding God in the highest regard, instead of recognizing his power and authority and respecting that and submitting to that, which, which in the end is really exalting, our, in the end it leads to us exalting ourselves. Instead of exalting him, we exalt ourselves. We exalt our own choices. We exalt our own desires. The truth is, in the end, so often we're about our own glory. And that's what's happening in Egypt. How else can we explain a leader, but really an entire people group, that's gotten to the point that they're, o- they're okay with enslaving an entire people group in a lot of ways, treating them like animals? It's happened in over and over in the world's history, hasn't it? It's happened in our history. Like, I'm so ashamed that that's a part of our history too. But how, how can we get to the point where we can enslave an entire people group and treat them like animals as if somehow we're better than them? Do you think that, that always happens just like that? No, it's one decision at a time, one step at a time, choosing our way instead of God's way, choosing what we desire over what God desires, choosing what our selfish needs over, the, over other people again and again and again, and then we end up where we never thought we would be. Terrible, horrible things happen in this world. And I'm guessing for a lot of people, they don't just jump into all the evil right away. It's one step at a time, going further and further and further into into depravity, further and further away from what is good and right. Things that I think most of us know are good and right. I mean, even from the time we're little. You know, this is what Romans 1 talks about. We mentioned Romans 1 before. We're going to talk about it again. Romans 1 really kind of tells us that everyone deep down knows there's a God. They look at all creation and they see God's glory in all things. As I've said before, do you think a deer walks up to a mountain and looks up at a mountain and thinks, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. I'm overwhelmed. You ever seen the mountains for the first time? It draws you to worship almost, doesn't it? Here stood by the sea. Do you think a turtle walks along the sand and looks at the sea and just overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of the sea, of the ocean for the first time? No, there's something built in us that's built to worship, that knows there's something bigger. It makes no sense that we look at a pile of rocks or a bunch of water and feel overwhelmed. We were built to worship. 
there's something in us that knows there's something worthy of glory, and our heart longs to give that thing glory, and we do it, and we look for it in other places. But Romans 1 says that that's what we were built to do, to worship, to live for the glory of something greater in us, and we all know. And for most of us, too, we all know, at least to some extent, what is good and right. What Romans 1 teaches us is that over time, exalting ourselves again and again, choosing sin instead of God's way, choosing our way instead of God's way, again and again and again, we suppress that truth more and more and more. Until for some of us, it gets to the point where it almost gets winked out. That's how you enslave an entire people group. You suppress the truth long enough, the truth starts to disappear. Like I said, most of the time that starts with small things, but over time that can reap terrible consequences. Terrible consequences. So I'm just going to spoil my sermon. It's going to sound like I'm wrapping up. I am not wrapping up. You know me too well, right? But here, I'm going to spoil it. Here's here's the question we're going to land with today. Where are you exalting yourself? Where are you lifting up your own desires, your own ways, over exalting God in his ways? Can you just think about that for a second? Not just listen to me, but think about like, where in your life do you think you might be doing that? Because sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's just obvious sin. It's the obvious thing that we struggle with. It's the obvious thing that we choose instead of choosing God. But sometimes really, sometimes self-exaltation, self-worship, putting yourself in God's place, sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes it's tricky to see it. Do you know what I mean by that? I think the story of Pharaoh helps us to see it. So let's get back to the story for a second as you're thinking about where you exalt yourself over God. Here's what I'm going to do today to save some time. I'm going to lump the first two plagues together, the hail and the locust. Because at first, hail and locust kind of seem like two completely different types of plagues, right? But they're not. They're, They're very related in this story. Right? They're very related in this story. They're very similar. One, because they're the dethroning of some of Israel's most powerful gods. Another one is that they lead to absolute economic ruin for Egypt. Absolute economic ruin. Remember, the Israelites, they live in the land of Goshen. Goshen is protected from all of this stuff. None of this stuff lands on Goshen. But for Egypt, this is economic ruin. But not only that, these two plagues represent God, as I said before, taking it to a whole other level. The other plagues were serious. The other plagues were bad. But these plagues have deadly consequences for the first time. Deadly consequences. And so we don't see it in the text. So if I don't see something in the text right away, I always want to say that. We don't see it in the text, but most theologians and most people, when they read this, we can fairly confidently look at the pantheon of Egyptian gods and see the direct attack, like God showing his power over the Egyptian gods that they held so high. And so a few of the Egyptian gods that God could be attacking directly are, one is Nut, the sky goddess. Another one is Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And Osiris was a big deal. And Set the god of storms. These were some of the most important gods in the Egyptian pantheon of gods because they worshiped a lot of gods. I think, Brandon, you say last week there was like thousands of gods potentially, 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon, right? And these are some of the most important. And so what's going to happen with the hail and the locust to to follow up is to show that these gods have absolute no power over the God of the Bible, which God has been displaying again and again and again. He's been showing your gods have no power. Pharaoh, you have no power. Your magicians have no power. Your people have no power. Your army has no power here. It's God displaying his glory. 
So with both of the plagues, um, it, sa- it says with the storm of hail and the in- infestation of locusts, either says that Egypt has never seen anything like this before, or in, in the, the case of the locusts, it's something that Egypt has never seen or will never see again. And that's saying something. Can we step back from, for a second? Like, we know about storms. Like, we hear, have like, you ever looked up the biggest storms ever? And usually on the internet, it'll give you the biggest storms in the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last 100 years. Egypt, by this point, has been a nation for at least 2,000 years. And by the way, you know this, they're still around today, 3,500 years later. So if it says this was a storm as Egypt has never seen, or the locust coming, like this plague came as something that Egypt has never seen or will never see again, listen, can you imagine a once in 5,000 year storm? They still talk about the flood in the 90s in Missouri, right? This is a once in 5,000 year storm, once in 5,000 year plague. Can you imagine that kind of storm? And again, this wasn't, when the, when the hail came, it wasn't just hail, was it? It said fire was raining down from the sky, terrible lightning, terrible hail. This was a storm and it would have been terrifying. Some of you are afraid of storms anyway. Some of you want to be storm chasers. You're insane, don't do that, you're going to die. But anyway, right? But like, that's a normal storm. This is a 5,000 year kind of storm. It's raining fire from the sky. It would be terrifying. Now they're talking about just a few years ago, there was a storm that had hail that was eight inches in diameter. Can you imagine hail like this falling from the sky? It killed people. You think that would kill some livestock for some people if they didn't listen to God and were stuck out in the field? There was a hailstorm, I don't remember, like in India and like the late 1800s, I think, where people were literally buried in the hail. It killed people and then buried them. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about here, a once in 5,000 year storm. Not only that, but can you imagine so many locusts, that, so many basically grasshoppers that haven't developed in the same way, right? So many locusts that the sky goes black. For those of you that hate bugs, I'm sorry, but like, yeah, that's the proper reaction. Sophie's like, that's, that's horrific, right? That's terror. I mean, actually picture that for a second. The sky is so filled with locusts that it goes dark. In 1874, there was an infestation of locusts on the Great Plains. Like, I think from like Montana to Texas, including Missouri. It was so bad that people literally died. Entire fields of crops were lost in hours. Like everything someone had, all of their farm lost in hours, leaving people in complete and utter ruin. They estimated the weight of all the locusts to be 27 million tons. Can you imagine? A locust weighs nothing, 27 million tons. Laura Ingalls Wilder, was alive during this, and she said that you could hear, you could hear millions of jaws biting and chewing to the point that they not only tore up all of the crops, they chewed on anything organic, including people's clothes on their back when they were trying to run away, like covering people, gnawing at what they're wearing. But that seems to be child's play compared to what happened in Egypt. For the Great Plains region, it was absolute economic ruin. The government had to step in. But that seems to be child's play compared to what's happening in Egypt. These things were not just creepy or inconvenient or scary. They were absolutely devastating. It would have been terror. Absolute terror. Especially with you imagine these things coming back to back. So by the end of these two plagues, it says that there are basically no plant, no crop 
nothing left in Egypt. Any livestock that they didn't bring in, dead. Egypt was ruined. And in the end, what we actually see with these two plagues is it seems that Pharaoh is actually starting to take this a little bit more seriously. If you're listening when we read, did you see what he said? That after the hail, he actually called in Moses and he told Moses that he was wrong and that he sinned against, listen, the Lord. Before he's saying, I don't even know who this Lord is. Here he's saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Sinned against him, right? After the locust, he calls Moses back in again and he takes it even a step further. He says, Moses, I have sinned against the Lord and I have sinned against you. And that's a huge deal. Because they had been begging at this point for Pharaoh to relent. And he said, no, I'm not going to relent. And so he went on forward and Egypt is in ruins. And so he has to admit in front of all of his servants, in front of all of his people, in front of his magicians, that he's not only sinned against God, but he sinned against Moses. Moses, the shepherd murderer, is standing before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's saying, I've sinned against you, Moses. Moses is a nobody. But because God has made him powerful, Moses is apologizing to him and says he sinned against him. So it seems like Pharaoh might be finally getting it. Pharaoh might be coming around. But there's a reason in chapter 9, verse 30, Moses said, but as for you, he's talking to Pharaoh, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord. In Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, when it talks about fearing the Lord in this way, it's not talking about being afraid. It's talking about worshiping the God of the Bible. Your fear driving you to submission, to humility, to, to submitting to the God of the Bible. He says, Moses says, I know you might be doing these things. You might be saying you sin against God, but you do not yet fear the Lord. Listen, church, this is important. There's a difference between knowing the truth and walking in that truth. Knowing you have sinned, and maybe even admitting that you've sinned, and walking away from your sin in repentance. Knowing the truth and submitting to the truth are two different things. Pharaoh knows. He knows now, but there's a problem keeping him from submitting to the truth. It goes back to the reason that all of this is happening in the first place. We see it in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. So read chapter 10, 1 through 3 with me. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell them in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Here's the real problem, church. Pharaoh will not humble himself before the Lord. Again, I mentioned this before, but in chapter 5, Pharaoh literally says to Moses when Moses comes to him the first time, who is this Lord that I should obey him? Like, who, who is this guy? Who is this guy that you call Lord that I should obey him? Well, now, now he knows who the Lord is. He's seen very clearly who the Lord is through these judgments that we're talking about, even going to the point confessing that he has wronged him, even sinned against him. But does that mean that Pharaoh has truly repented and is willing to humble himself before the Lord? Humble himself before the Lord. 
We're going to see in a couple other passages that the answer to that is clearly no. It's clearly no. And God is going to take that lack of humility to make an example of Pharaoh. In a lot of ways, I hate to use this word, but God in this moment is humiliating Pharaoh. That seems like a strong word, right? But he's taking all of his power, all of his pride, and he's bringing it all low, humiliating him, humbling him, right? The gods of Egypt, the power of Egypt, the power of Pharaoh, and he's humbling him. Not just so that Pharaoh will know who the Lord is, but he says, so you can tell your son, so you can tell your grandson. God is doing this not just for the people of this generation, for Israel and Egypt, so that every generation, people will tell their grandkids, that will tell their grandkids, that will tell their grandkids, so that we'll still be talking about the story 3,500 years later. Because of a man who refused to humble himself before the Lord and through judgment. Like I said at the beginning, that I say all the time, we want to be a church where you can be honest. Where you can confess what you're going through. When you can even confess your sin and you can share that with people. You can share with people what's really going on in your heart and just be open be honest, like be where you are and that's okay. So then that from that point you can move forward. Yes, and amen to that, but hear me. Confession without true repentance, without a desire to humble yourself before the Lord and do it his way and not your way is worthless. Confession without that is just a way for us to feel better. It's a way for us to get things off our chest to maybe be a little bit more known. But without the humility to submit to God's way, hear me, it's just self-medication. And we've even seen that in our church sometimes. Right? We're so big on pushing, being open, being honest. Right? Being vulnerable with people. Yes, amen. The church is so bad at that as a whole. We want to be those things. But if, if you're just confessing things and then your life never changes... It's self-medication. It's making yourself feel better for a time to get it off your chest. But if we don't move forward, we're not really submitting ourselves. We're not really humbling ourselves before the Lord. Pharaoh has done this over and over, hasn't he? He's confessed again and again, I've messed up, asked God to stop this, God stops this, and he goes right back to what he did before. Tell me that doesn't describe your life sometimes. Tell me there's not been times in your life, or maybe right now, that is not exactly who you are. God, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done this thing. Man, the next day, three days later, five days later, you're doing the same thing again. Listen, I get it, and I have been there. If any of you know my story, I have been there. It's humility, it's submission that changes your life. That's what repentance is. Yes, there's, there's repentance at the beginning of our faith when we admit that we need Jesus Christ and we repent of our sin. Repentance is a little different later. It's not for salvation, it's submission. It's a reminder that I need to do it God's way, not my way. That's what leads to sanctification. That's what leads to change. Pharaoh knows the truth, and he's even confessing it, but he's not submitting to it. Let me show you just how tricky that can be, because maybe people could read this and think, oh, poor Pharaoh, but the truth is he won't submit. Look at, look at verse 7 in chapter 10. Verse 7 in chapter 10. We'll read for the verse 11. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Do you see that? They're so exhausted. They're so done with this that they're calling Moses a snare. How long are you going to let this go on? You know what a snare is? It trapped animals. It was an animal trap, right? And so what they're saying is, how long are you going to let Moses imprison us? You know what's ironic about that statement? 
This all happened because they're enslaving other people. They've snared other people. And as this story has gone along, the Egyptians are, or the Israelites, God's people are getting closer and closer to freedom. And the Egyptians are getting more and more enslaved to their pride. Is that not how this works? Is that not how sin works? We get enslaved to our pride, to our sin. The Israelites are getting more free. The Egyptians are getting more enslaved. Keep going. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he, Pharaoh, said to him, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that's what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. That's after the hail that he says that. And Egypt is in almost complete ruin. That's why his servants and his magicians and his people are telling him to relent. They're basically begging him to do so. But did you really see what happened there? It seems like he's willing to relent, but do you see what happened? Was Pharaoh really relenting? It's not real. He said, okay, let the men go worship. Let, let, let the men go worship, but not, but not the children, not the women, now, why do you think he was doing that? He's, he's apologized for his sin, right? He's confessed his sin. He's saying, okay, I'm going to let them go. Just let the men go. It's because he wants to guarantee that his slaves are going to return to him. He wants it to be his way. He wants it to be on his terms, not on God's terms. He's giving in only because he has to give in. His country is ruined, but he's still trying to control it. His pride is still trying to hold on to as much as his pride possibly can. This is not submission. This is an army general in the field that the other army is kicking his tail and he has to retreat and give up ground. But he's only giving up the ground that he absolutely has to because he's still trying to hold on to what is his. That's what we're seeing here. This isn't poor Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh giving ground only where he has to give ground. And so he sends Moses away in anger. No, I'm not going to let your people go. And then the locusts come. And then Moses comes back again, right? Again, he's like, go get Moses. He apologizes again. I've sinned against you, God. I've sinned against you, Moses. You think it would be time? You think it would be time for him to finally submit? Even though, because at this point, the hail and the locusts have completely proven that his gods are absolutely impotent to stop any of this. The magicians have, long time ago, his magicians have proven to be worthless. His wise men don't have any answers. And his people who didn't take shelter literally died in the field where they stood and he still won't humble himself. He's still refusing. So then we get to the second to last plague, darkness. And for this one, Moses didn't even go, God didn't tell Moses to go before Pharaoh and warn him before it happened. He just tells Moses, go out and raise your staff. And darkness falls on the land. A deep, deep darkness. Honestly, from the text, I couldn't tell if it was complete darkness, like they were going around blind and couldn't go anywhere, or just like the littlest light would work for them. Right? I think you can make an argument for either one, but either way, it was complete and utter darkness, as in the darkest night possible, as in being in a cave with no light whatsoever. Now, I don't know, and this is for a full three days. 
Does that sound as bad as hail or locusts to you? Deep darkness for three days? To me, it doesn't sound as bad as the others on the surface, but um, it's, ignor- it's enorm- enormously significant and terrible for a few reasons. One is the God that is typically considered the king of all Egyptian gods and the God that Pharaoh is most aligned with is the sun god Ra. He was the God of light. He's the God of the sun. And at this time is the most revered of all the gods by many people. Most people think he's the king of all gods. They, some, a lot of people actually think Ra is the creator of everything and the ultimate ruler over everything, including the gods. So this second to last plague very much represents the king of the Egyptian gods versus the king of kings and the lord of lords. And as you can see, as you've seen all through this, it was no contest. Ra has no power over God. And I think it probably freaked people out. That even Ra has no power over this God, over this Israelite God. But not only that, in the ancient world, particularly in Egypt, darkness represented fear and death. And so for us to really understand that, I think we got to get our minds out of the modern world where light is abundant pretty much anywhere we want to go, right? We get away from light where the, be- the best you're going to do if you're, if you're out at night traveling the road is torchlight, which gives you about 10 feet of view, maybe a little bit more in the shadows a little further, but you're traveling at night at your own risk. It was a scary thing in this time to be outside alone. Thieves were outside at night or they're really, really brave. That's it. And so it was a fearful thing to be outside at night, particularly in Egypt. It represented fear, but it also represented death for them. Death for them. So the plague of darkness would not only be terrifying for people who were stuck in their homes. Listen, stuck in their homes after their country had been in ruins. Their country is in complete ruin. Their livelihoods are in complete ruin. They've got nothing left. They have no idea how their country is going to survive. And then a darkness falls. That's scary enough. But it represented death. And so this is really a foreshadowing of things to come because the most deadly, deadly plague is ne- next. The most awful plague by far is next. And with this darkness representing death for them, I think there was this foreboding, this ominous feeling with Pharaoh and all his people like, what is coming for us? What is next? And it was worse than they probably thought. They said they felt the darkness. I think it's related to like what darkness represented for them. There's this ominous thing that's coming and they could feel it. So much, in fact, that after three days, when Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in, he seems to be ready to almost fully give in. To almost fully give in. Like the darkness did him in. But as repentant as Pharaoh seems, we see the truth in his response to Moses and Aaron. When they come back into him, they come back to see him for the last time. Look at the last visit of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh in verse 24 of chapter 10. We'll read through the end of the chapter. 10, 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us sacrifice, have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again, for on the day that you see it, 
that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. For those of you and actually know a little bit about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that atoned for sin, keep in mind that that hadn't really happened yet. Now, now Moses knows that they're, they're going to sacrifice atone for their sin. There had been some of that in the Old Testament, right? People would make sacrifices. Abraham did that, right? We've seen some of that. But like the sacrificial system has not been laid out. The law has not been laid out. So Moses, in a lot of ways, is saying, hey, I know we're going to make sacrifices to the Lord, but God has more for us. And I don't know all that God has for us, so I'm taking everything with me because that's what God has commanded. That's exactly what God told him to do. So here's the thing. I don't think Moses is trying to be difficult with Pharaoh. I think, in fact, I think he's being kind of polite to him. He just knows exactly what God told him to do. So that's exactly what he's going to do. But I want to get to my real point here, which is Pharaoh's response. Like I said, he seems ready to relent, but he still, you see it? He still holds on desperately to that last ounce of power that he has, that last, last vestige of control, that last, last shred of self-exaltation he feels he has left. He says, you guys can go, okay, all of you can go, but leave your livestock behind. Your livestock's got to stay behind. And again, I'm going to ask that question, is that not you? Is that not me? Pharaoh knows who the Lord is. He knows that this God has power over all creation He knows that this God even has power over his own gods, over Pharaoh himself. And even though at this point he knows that's true, is Pharaoh humbling himself before God? No. Now, let's be honest, let's be fair. Part of this is because God is hardening his heart until God is ready for him to relent, right? That's in the passage. God is doing that. But Exodus has made clear over and over and over that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. That Pharaoh has made decisions to be his own God, to exalt himself, to not to submit. That Pharaoh wants to exalt himself, not exalt God. That has been made clear. So if this is new to you, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, again, this is not God changing someone's heart. This is not God converting someone's heart to evil. This is God taking a hard-hearted rebellion. in the arm, right, and move forward. A little reminder about what we're holding back in our own lives, that thing that we're trying to to hold on to where we're not humbling ourselves before an almighty God. I hope that's what it is for most of us today. So my question is, what is it for you? Because I bet some of you are thinking, if some of you would spend some time thinking and some time praying, God would show you the areas in your life where you're saying, yeah, God, but... I'll give you this, but just not all of this. I want you to have this thing, but just, just not all of this thing. God, this one's mine. 
I hope you can see whatever it is today. And again, just have that little shot in the arm, a little reminder from the Holy Spirit that convicts you in your heart. Right now, like right now, I'm praying right now that just a conviction in your heart and that you know what it is. And through that conviction, you can pray and ask God to forgive you and really repent and, and ask God to help you move forward and maybe even confess that to your life group or the person that disciples you or a friend so that you can help be, be held accountable and that you might actually be able to move forward. That's what I'm praying for to God, that you can submit to the glory of God and move forward. And listen, that that would bring God glory. It brings God glory when his people see these things, they repent of these things, and they move forward. And then you can talk to other people about how God freed you and forgave you, and you move forward out of this thing. That brings God glory. But the reality is that for some of us, that's not going to be enough. Oh man, I wish it was. But for some of us, it's not going to be enough. For some of you, our great physician in heaven is going to have to cut deep. For some of us, it's going to take him absolutely wrecking you so that you might see, so that you might know that he is Lord and you are not. And he's going to do that because he loves you. Because he cares enough to let it happen. And so that through that healing, his glory might be proclaimed through you to a broken world. It's one of the reasons, Chris, I don't mean to pick on you. I didn't ask ahead of time. Can I talk about you for a second? It's why when Chris gave his testimony when we baptized and he shared that the way he got saved is he beat up a Christian for sharing the gospel with him. And then that Christian came back to jail and said, I've already forgiven you because Christ has already forgiven me. You don't have to apologize. It's done. It's over. And Chris had no understanding of how to, to, to rectify that in his brain. And then he went and talked to people who know Jesus and he gave his life to Jesus. It's why all of you are crying listening to his testimony. Because sometimes God wrecks people because he loves them. Praise God for it. I hate it, and I love it. It's terrible, and it's beautiful. I mean, I do not want that to be your story. You can submit your life to Christ now. Whatever that thing is, give it to him. Lay it down. He wants to redeem you. He wants to help you move forward. He wants to, to free you from whatever that thing is so that you might proclaim his glory and the freedom. Don't be wrecked. Submit. Because God opposes the proud. But listen, he gives grace and love and his presence to the humble. He is with you. Worship team, will you come up? Will you come on, come, come on up, worship team? Because here's what I want to do. I just want to spend some time in prayer right now. Whatever's convicting you, whatever's stirring your heart, whatever might be that, that, might, that thing that you know you need to lay down, but you hold on a little too tightly to, then would you just take that before the Lord? Because he wants to set you free. He wants you to know his glory for you to experience it and for your life to proclaim it. So I'm just going to ask the worship team to play. They find their way up here and give you some time to pray. Church, we say this church exists to glorify God. 
and advance the gospel. By submitting your life, you will glorify God and the gospel will advance. Take whatever it is before the Lord today. If you need prayer, I'll be over here. I would love to pray with you.